Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church, located in Grove City, Pennsylvania. As we approach the end of the 2017 fiscal year, we encourage you, if you've been helped by these sermons, to make a donation to Grace by visiting our website, graceanglicanonline.com, and clicking on the Donate tab. Thank you for your help. And now we turn our attention to the far more important subject of the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open up our hearts, give us ears to hear, and teach us how to diminish. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nobody likes to be diminished, do they? Uh, No one likes it when you're made to feel a little bit less than, like you're somehow imperfect or strange or a freak. I mean, I don't know. We all went through middle school and junior high. So at some point we were in like the pre-human stage of life. And we remember what that was like to be diminished. I can name more, I can name many, many occasions in my own life where I was made to feel less than. Uh, One such event uh, happened to me when I was in seminary. Now, when I went to college, I didn't care that much. I just, I got through it. When I got to seminary, I cared and I wanted to do well. And we all probably have a person in our life that always has just that right thing to say or do that makes us feel kind of dumb. That sort of, they always have the, the right answer and they always have the thing that makes them look superior while we look sort of less than. Well, I had a classmate in seminary who was kind of like that. Now, when I was in seminary, this was, this was just before like, the internet really became a thing that you used all the time in, in classes. And we would actually still, and maybe you do, but we would turn in actual papers, like on real paper. And we would turn them in, and they would be graded, and in, we wouldn't have anything emailed back to us. Our papers were put in our mailboxes in the post office and we would maybe that's still the case at Grove City College I don't know Um, but we would go and get our grades and uh, after one particular test it happened that this guy always had a knack you know for making us look dumb he was a few boxes down from me and he was getting his grades at the same time that I was and he with one sentence proved that he was both more intelligent and more pious than me He pulls his grades out, he looks at his paper, and he says, oh, thank you, Jesus. And I said to myself, oh, shut up. Uh, We all know, we all know that guy. Um, Diminishing is not fun. It's not fun to know that you're somehow second tier. And yet maybe you've experienced that in your life. Well, I want to look at that idea in our gospel lesson today. And specifically, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at distress coming from envy, displacement of our affections, and diminishment of the self. Distress, displacement, and diminishment. And we start in John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptized at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. So 
at this point in Jesus' ministry, he, he's just now starting to get traction. He's called his disciples. He's already done the, we, uh, the miracle at the wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine. He's spoken with Nicodemus about how one must be um, born again. He's, he's um, been baptized. And what the text seems to be telling us is that at some point, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist were happening simultaneously. They were both still ministering, but Jesus' star was on the rise as John's was in decline. And so they're both in a particular region. The text tells us it's Anon near Salim. Nobody has any idea where that is. <laughs> there are a couple of possibilities, but um, apparently from the text, it's somewhere where there were a lot of springs and a lot of water. So they're in the same general vicinity, baptizing uh, believers. And uh, something happens. A troublemaker shows up. Verse uh, 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Uh, the reference to Jew there is most likely a reference to a Pharisee. A Pharisee shows up and he starts stirring the pot. He starts causing trouble. And he begins a debate with John's disciples over purification. Now, we don't know what that means. Like, what specifically about purification were they talking about? It's not in the text. I read lots of scholars and commentators. Nobody really knows. But most likely, it's a discussion about the nature of John's baptism versus the nature of the baptism being done by Jesus' disciples. Now, in this passage, it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. But in John chapter 4, just a few verses later... It tells us that Jesus wasn't actually baptizing. And if you remember back to Jesus' own baptism, John says, I will baptize with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not actually doing water baptisms, but his disciples are. And so whatever this discussion is, it plants a seed. It plants a, a seed. And John's disciples come back to him. And they say, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. The Pharisee drops into this situation a distresser, a distress of envy. He plants a little seed that starts to bear fruit. And John's disciples, being defensive of their rabbi, take the bait. And now, of course, you see what they say. You know, Jesus is baptizing over here and everyone's going to him. This is classic envy. Envy being you covet what someone else has. Jealousy being you protect what you have. Uh, John chapter 12, we see the Pharisees playing into this kind of envy at another time. This is right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You see, Pharisees, whether it's the ones in the Bible or the ones that you know, Pharisees are almost always envious. 
because self-righteousness needs to always be compared to someone else's righteousness and it needs to be praised. It needs attention. The Pharisee needs everyone to know that he is righteous. He wants to be the top dog. And when someone else comes along and starts pulling attention away, that upsets a Pharisee. And so this Pharisee meets with John's disciples and he plants this little seed of envy. Now here's the the funny thing about envy. It is a deep, deep sin. It's very insidious and it's very deadly. And the reason why it is so deadly is because with other sins, it's on the surface and it's obvious. But envy can be masked as Christian ambition or the pursuit of excellence. It can be masked as pride. It can be masked, it can be pride masked as something else. Envy can be lethal. Uh, When I was in seminary, a mentor of mine told me that there are three kinds of problems that most people in ministry deal with. Three types of sin problems. One, uh, greed and money. But most ministers have that dealt with. If we were really greedy, we probably wouldn't be ministers. Um, The second one would be your lust issues and physical issues and sexual issues. Uh, I'm not saying that doesn't exist among pastors. It certainly does. But most at least are aware of it and trying to fight it. But the third one, the third trap, I don't know a minister who does not at some point suffer with envy and pride. Uh, All of us. All of us. In fact, we had a meeting with our bishop just last week and we were looking at just numbers around the diocese, at attendance numbers and how churches were doing. And it was uncomfortable <laughs> to sit in a room and looking at the numbers. And, and for some of our folks, it was hard. And for others of us, we're wondering, you know, this is brutal but necessary. Um, pride is a trap that most ministers always deal with. And the thing is, I think most Christians deal with it. There's a fable uh, once that, that says that the, the devil once w- was once traveling across the Libyan desert because if the devil's going to live anywhere, it's probably Libya. So he's, 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 I'm sorry if there's anyone here that's Libyan. I didn't mean to say that. Um, like the devil is cr- tra- traveling across the Libyan desert and he comes across a gang of young men. And this gang of young men, they're harassing a monk who is on a pilgrimage and they're trying to tease him and coax him into falling into some sort of sin, some sort of seduction of the flesh or doubt or fear or or whatever. And the devil, he watches this for a while and he watches this holy man on a pilgrimage never budge. And so finally he approaches this gang of young men and he says, look, you guys, your approach is way too simple. Like, watch what I do. And he goes up to this monk and he says, have you heard the news? Your brother has been made bishop of Alexandria. And according to the fable, there was a scowl of malignant jealousy that crossed the monk's face. Uh, That is the sin that haunts most of us most of the time. But we are so good at hiding. We're so good at hiding. And envy, envy does something to all of our relationships. And we see it in this passage. The seed that this Pharisee has planted springs up a fruit And it's a fruit of division between John and Jesus. He's trying to create a conflict 
Because the Pharisees see both John and Jesus as a threat. I mean, they're out there in the wilderness and people are coming to them. And so he plants this seed. And notice when John's disciples go back to him, notice how they reference Jesus. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. They don't use Jesus' name. They don't call him Messiah or Lord. They basically call him that guy. Remember that guy that was with you across the Jordan? That guy for whom you bore witness, like you stuck your neck out for him? You proclaimed him Messiah? Remember that guy? That guy is baptizing and everyone's going to him. Notice what they don't say. You see, and this is what envy does. Envy causes you to downplay the legitimate accomplishments of your friends and neighbors. Notice what they don't mention. They forget the entire part about Jesus being baptized and the skies opening up and the Holy Spirit coming down and God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They just leave that part out. And in leaving it out, they demonstrate their own pettiness. And they demonstrate their own envy. And they demonstrate... The poisonous part of envy is that when you look at your friends and your colleagues and your classmates, you cannot be happy for them for who then what they are and what God has given them. Because somewhere deep down you want it to. And you think it belongs to you. Another thing that envy does is it causes... Uh, simple misunderstandings to be blown way out of proportion. Perceived slights become major problems. Have you ever noticed this? You have a friend who's perhaps better at something than you are. And they say to you, here, maybe this is how you can improve improve in this area. And you get upset with them. Uh, They're just trying to help, but you're mad because you perceive their helpfulness as them insulting you, calling you dumb or not good enough. You see, envy creates a division among friends who should be working together. That's what this Pharisee is trying to do between Jesus and John. Introduced a seed of envy that actually drives them apart. If you're experiencing this sort of thing with a friend in your life, the problem is probably not them. It's probably you. You know, I've experienced this. I've experienced it. I experience it far more often than I would like to. Friends trying to help offer good advice. I get defensive. What are you saying? I don't know what I'm doing? What do you say? I'm no good at this. That's just envy. That's just pride. It, it divides people in the weirdest ways. Uh, Richard, King Richard the Lionheart and King Philip of France uh, started the Crusades as friends. They traveled together as allies. Remember, Richard was a, was a Norman. He was like half French. And, and they, they go on the Crusades together. And at some point after they begin entering into battles, uh, Richard earns the nickname Lionheart because the men see him as brave and the men see him as a great warrior and they give him a good nickname like Lionheart and they give Philip nothing. (laughs) And Philip gets jealous and he starts to argue with Richard about battle plans. And before it's all over, he's actively contradicting orders and actively working against Richard. And finally he gets mad and he leaves the Crusades and comes back to France. And just a year or so later, he invades England. Because what better thing to do to the person who's made you look foolish? 
Envy and jealousy can just drive people apart. And in this case, get a lot of people killed. Envy and jealousy. And so we have this distress that's been introduced into this relationship uh, because this Pharisee wants John and Jesus at war with one another. And what we see then starting in verse 27 is what we have in John's disciples is a displacement of affections. We have a distress and a displacement. Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Um, Have you ever met someone who's made an idol out of their heroes? You see these people on the internet all the time. It's weird, okay? It's weird. It's weird if somebody insults someone that you like or has a legitimate criticism of someone you like that you lose your mind protecting them and defending them. That's weird, okay? Um, Because this is what's happening here, right? John is this guy who's gone out into the wilderness eating bugs and wild honey, wearing camel's hair. And he's got people following him, okay? They're committed. (laughs) They're committed. And now... They see this guy, Jesus, this guy who, who is coming to, came to us. You, John, stuck your neck out for him. Now he's baptizing. He's not just doing regular baptisms. He's like stealing our show. Like we're the people who go out in the wilderness. But now he's over here in the Judean wilderness baptizing people. We're the people who do radical stuff. Now he's out here with us and everyone's going to him. You see, their, their envy isn't just for their rabbi. Their envy is for themselves. You see, they have a displaced affection. The, they started this mission. They started this journey with John to draw attention to the Messiah. But it's become displaced with a love for their rabbi. They fall in love with the wrong person. And they're looking to him to give them significance. And John is very wise. He knows who he is and he knows who Jesus is. And he uses a little story, a parable, to explain the situation. First he says up front, I told you I'm not the Christ. (laughs) Stop treating me like that. I told you that I was sent before him. And then he uses this little parable of a wedding. And he he talks about uh, the friend of the bridegroom. Now, in Jewish tradition, while a couple was betrothed, the groom-to-be would go to his parents' home and he would build a room typically on the family house for he and his new bride to live in. And they would be betrothed for about a year. And then he would send his best man to the bride's house to bring her from her parents' house into the house that he has built for her, and they would be married in that house. And it's the best man's honor and privilege to escort the bride to her new husband and her new home. And John is saying, I'm the best man. Like, this was my job. I was here to bring the bride Israel to her Messiah. And now her Messiah is here. And I'm happy because my job is done. And I've done what I came to do. See, John... 
John, according to Jesus, is the greatest man ever born of a woman. He's a fascinating character. But he knows this place. And even, even at the end, just before Herod Antipas is about to cut off his head, you remember he sends a message to Jesus and he says, Are you the one or should we expect another? Notice that John never thinks that he's the one. Never. Even in that moment of doubt, he still doesn't think he's the one. He knows his place. And he says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John knows that this ministry he has is not his ministry. It was never his. Your job is not your job. Your spouse is not your spouse. Your children are not your children. Everything you have, you have from God. He gives for his purposes. And John the Baptist has a humility about him to know his place in it all and to rejoice in it and to be okay that his part is decreasing while Jesus's part is increasing but that's hard to do isn't it we're very competitive Uh, we we like uh, to get the attention that we think we deserve the British evangelist F.B. Meyer uh, came over from England, and he was contemporaries with D.L. Moody, late 1800s, early 1900s. He comes over from England and starts doing uh, revival meetings in Northfield, Massachusetts, and he was getting very large crowds. And then a very famous British Bible teacher by the name of G. Campbell Morgan comes to the same place and starts opening up revival meetings and doing Bible teaching, and the crowds start flocking over to Morgan. And this is what Meyer had to say about that. He said, the only way I can conquer my feelings is to pray for Morgan daily, which I do. But then he says this. He told some friends later, it was easy to pray for the success of Morgan when he was in America. But when he came back to England and took a church near mine, it was something different. The old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy, but I got my heel upon his head And whether I felt right toward my friend, I determined to act right. My church gave him a reception. And I acknowledged that if it was not necessary for me to preach Sunday evenings, I would dearly love to go and hear him myself. Well, that made me feel right toward him. But just see how the dear Lord helped me out of my difficulty. There was Charles Spurgeon preaching wonderfully on the other side of me. He and Mr. Morgan were so popular and drew such crowds that our church caught the overflow and we had all we could accommodate. People were going to see these other preachers until their churches were so full there was no more room. And then they came to Meyer's church. Now from an envious and jealous perspective, he's second fiddle. He's just the substitute. He's the guy they came to because they couldn't go to the guys they really wanted to see. But what Meyer is showing us here, that in the economy of God, every person has their role. And God is doing what he is going to do, even if you think you're not getting the credit you deserve. And God blessed this church because the pastor was willing just to try to be a pastor. This is what John is telling us. He's telling us that You can let envy and jealousy go. That whatever you have or think you have or think you deserve, it's not yours anyway. And God's doing what God is doing. And he'll use the humble. He'll use the humble. And he'll put you in the place that he wants you. 
And so John is telling his disciples, you, you have an affection that has been displaced by the wrong person, by the wrong objects. Your popularity, my popularity, were never the point. The point was always to look forward and point people to the Messiah. And the Messiah is here, and our job is done, and we can have joy in that. Even if we fade from the scene. And as you know, John the Baptist loses his head not, much, not too far from now. And so how does he accomplish this? And it's how do we deal with distress Cause from envy. And how we, do we deal with the displacement of affections? We deal with it through, di- through the diminishment of the self. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so why must John diminish? This is a, an interesting thought. They, they were working simultaneously. Their ministries were going on side by side. And part of this is John's personal piety. Like he is... A godly person. Again, Jesus said, the greatest man ever born to a woman. That's high praise coming from the Son of God. (laughs) He does have a certain personal humility and he knows his place. But it's not just who John is as a person. The, The issue here is who John is as a representative. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. We don't think of him that way because he's in the New Testament, but he's the last All the other prophets have come and they've all been pointing to the Messiah. They've all been pointing to the kingdom of God. And John is the last and the greatest of all of them. The only one while alive on earth who sees the Messiah face to face. And John knows that he must decrease because the age of the old covenant is passing away. Because the Messiah is here and and the old covenant will be fulfilled. And what happens next? No one has ever seen before. And John knows that he must diminish for the plan of God to go forward. And it's time for him to step off the scene. The law is about to be fulfilled. What was incomplete is about to be made made whole. And the new covenant is coming into its place. And everything, everything in that first advent diminishes when the Son of God approaches. Everything that was diminishes because we see in Jesus in his face the glory of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and everything in that first advent diminishes and now in this advent season we long for the second advent we we long for a time when the troubles of this world diminish forever diminishment to be made small We don't like that thought. And yet it seems to me that that is the only way to find redemption. That is the only way to find salvation. To become small in the presence of the Son of God. To put our envy aside and our jealousy and our pride and our competing that we call, you know, the pursuit of perfection. We we set all that aside. And being diminished is sometimes painful. It's going to hurt. When you finally give up control of your life and realize that you were never really in control of it anyway, that kind of hurts. But it's in those places and in those times where you have lost control, when you have been diminished and embarrassed, perhaps humiliated, it's in those moments 
that God actually reaches down and speaks to you. It's in those moments where we decrease and he increases. And we actually find who we are and who we were meant to be. When your envy and jealousy and pride are no more, you become who you were supposed to be. You become who you really were. And so in this Advent season, I want to encourage you uh, that diminishment is good. That as we look forward to the second Advent, we can have confidence that when the Son of God shows up, this mess that we are in will fade away. And the old stuff will be no more. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth and the presence of God in such a way that we have never seen before. And that is why it is so profoundly good to be diminished. Father, make us small in your presence. And we ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.